Good morning. It's great to be here with you guys, and we are going to finish off this series called Long Story Short this morning. And if you're a guest here, you get an awesome opportunity to study through a whole book of the, of the New Testament in one sitting. And we've done that over the last three weeks, so we've done four books in four weeks. Now, just as a warning, Jude's a, one of those books that could have been broken into several different, actually a whole series probably of, uh, of its own. But we're going to dive into this anyway, and this is the last one we're going to talk about is Jude. And so it's going to be a I think a, um, a challenging, important message for us as a church and for us as a culture this morning, and so glad that you guys could be here. But before we do anything else, let's go ahead and open up in some prayer, if you would join with me. Father in heaven, we uh, come before you understanding that so many of us could be in here today. We um been distracted by the music. You know, some of us are are, are trying to get engaged. We've been upset with something that happened with our kids before we got here, or perhaps uh, the loneliness of being single this week, or finding ourselves just um, wrestling with our, our marriage or work in some way. And God, I just ask that right now that your presence would be here, that we come to meet with you. We haven't come to just do something. We've come to have an encounter with you. We ask that you would be present by your spirit to lead us in your word and challenge us in your truth, that we would be a people who live this out, and God, that we would have eyes to see and ears to hear uh, what you're saying to us today. So we, we ask your presence, and we ask that you would indeed meet us today in Jesus' name. All God's children said, amen. Well, at my house uh, a few months ago, my boys uh, discovered something that I wasn't ever privy to as, as a young as a young child. You know, I got my uh, I didn't have brothers, and so I had two sisters and I had a whole bunch of female cousins, and so I wasn't really able to really engage in what my sons, for the first time I ever saw, actually do. And that was we had just finished wrestling around uh, together. I will wrestle with my boys, and I got three of them. And the two older ones got up and they decided, you know what, we're gonna go after each other. And so they sat there across the room. They made sure they took their shirts off because. That's, that's how you do it when you're their age, Mowgli style. And they're just kind of re- ready to go after each other. And suddenly they're attacking each other. And my, my son, Nate, who's like 70 pounds dripping wet, is, is taking my 50, my son, Jonathan, and pinning him to the ground, who's 50 pounds wet. And, you, and he's sitting there and they're grunting like, and you're watching every little muscle in their body strain as they're pushing and they're, they're trying to get the better of the other. And well, Jonathan's really wiry. And so he lifts his legs up in a contortionist situation, pushes his brother off with his legs. And Nate's now kind of figuring out what's going on. He resumes his weight power and gets on top of him and keeps him down. And suddenly Jonathan realizes, I'm in trouble. You know, I'm going to be pinned to the ground. This isn't good. And so he resorts to every measure, his strongest measure. He uses it all the time, whining. And so he starts going, oh, Nate, you're hurting me. Stop it. And Nate goes, oh, oh, oh. Backs up and he goes, ha, ah, ha, and he him. And it's like all battle all, all over the place. And they're going after each other for a good 15 minutes. I'm just loving this whole scene because to me, it wakes something inside of me. Men were built as little boys first and we were made in some way to fight. Amen, guys? There's something in us that likes to have the fight. It may not be physical all the time. It may be that thing at work that you're trying to conquer. It may be that one person that you're trying to sell that to and you're just like, I'm going to fight for this. This is the one I want. This is the one thing I want to do. Guys have inside of them a sense of a fight that rises up when they want to be challenged, when they want to push, when they want to defend, when they want something. Now, ladies, you're not immune to this either. Don't I mean, my mom was the one lady who was running out and go, don't fight. She'd like hold me back and all that kind of stuff. But ladies, you guys have a fight in you too. You're not called mama bears for no reason. Isn't that true? I mean, mama bears in the room, you start messing with their kids, and it's, it's, it may not be physical, but your mouth's cut faster than any sort I've ever seen. So, 
And you ladies are ready. You're boom. You, you, you're just ready to take it on with every mental and verbal judo you have at your, at your ability. And so there is a fight. Don't get me wrong. That you, When something's precious to you, we should not roll over and be quiet. Even though our culture wants to tell us that a verbal strength or a physical strength is something we shouldn't have. That's not true. Just inside of us is the desire to fight and contend for things, especially things that are precious to us. And Jude's going to lock right into that, right at the beginning. He's going to try to call that out of each one of us because we have been given something spectacularly precious. Something we may ignore as precious, but it is there. And so I want to do that. Well, let's, as we dive into Jude, we're going to look at what he calls us to. Grab your Bible, open up to Jude, and page 1027, the Bible's under your seats. You can be right there with us. Otherwise, if you have your own Bible, you, you can go to the end of your Bible, where the maps are and, and stuff. And if you find Revelation, just go to the page before Revelation, you'll be at Jude. And um, Jude is this one-page letter. Um, sometimes it can be written into three pages, depending on how many notes you have. But it's a, it's a one-page letter. And it was written by this man, Jude, who introduces himself in verse 1. So let's go ahead and start there. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James. Now his Jewish name would have been Judah or Judas, depending on how you would have read it. But Jude is the brother of Jesus. He's a half-brother of Jesus Christ. He's the full-blooded brother of James, who was, the, who was of the family of Joseph and Mary. And so while Jesus is born of Mary, these guys are Joseph's boys. And so Jude comes to faith in Jesus after the resurrection. He is one who didn't believe before while his brother was walking around. He said, my brother's a psycho. Jesus is, is nuts. You know, we don't need to listen to him. Then he raises from the dead and goes, I guess I'm the one that's wrong. And so he switches over to the point where he calls himself a servant. And now he's writing a letter then to a group of people, to churches. And my, my contention is that he is writing... After he has read Second Peter, we know it as Second Peter, the second letter Peter has sent out, and he is seeing the situation that Peter warned about coming true in his churches. And so now he, he writes to those who are called beloved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ. May mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you, he says, just as introduction. And now he had intended to write in a particular way, and so he starts off this way. He says, Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation... I found it necessary to write to you about something else. He says, at first, I was intending to write to you guys about our common salvation, the faith that we hold, and the reason we hold it. And I want to be able to talk about this communion and all this stuff probably he was going to get into. But he says, but I, I, I've had my mind changed. I need to talk about something else. He says, I'm writing to appeal to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. He says, guys, I want to appeal to you about something you need to get your fight on. You need to get built up and ready to go. Get, you need to realize there's something we need to defend. We need to contend for. We need to wrestle like my boys on the floor moving each other around. There's something precious going on here that we need to give ourselves to in a battle. And that is, he says, the faith. I think this is important. When we realize the faith isn't ours, it's something God gave to you. It's something he handed to you. He said, not only does this save you, I'm going to give it to you and you need to take care of it. It's been once for all handed over to you. It has been entrusted is another way of translating the term. Now, stop about that and think about it for a minute. How many of you guys have ever rented a car? Anybody rented a car? How many of you bought the insurance when you rented the car? Yeah, because you're smart. You don't want to stress out, right? If you crash the thing, it's not your fault. So that, that's how it works. But I can tell you, it is nerve-wracking to drive a rented car, is it not? 
You drive it more carefully, especially when you're in a different state and you're like, people inevitably, there's always that one guy who cuts off the rented car and you have to slam your brakes on and you nearly, maybe that's just me, but the, uh, the reality is it's tenacious. It's somebody else's car. It's somebody else's child when you're watching them for a weekend. You're like, don't die. Don't kill yourself. I, you know, I got to turn you back in to your parents. It's nerve wracking when somebody gives you the most precious beloved things to look after. And God's gospel is precious to him. God's message of redemption to humanity is precious to him. And he's given it to us to protect and to give away, but to keep and to hold to him. And Jude says, guys, you need to fight for it. We're in a situation. We need to have a fight about this. We need to be willing to step up and defend this thing. You say, well, why, Jude? What's going on, man? He says, verse 4, for certain people have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only master and Lord Jesus Christ. What he says here, he says, guys, I want you to hear me. You need to be careful. There have been some people who crept in through the side door. They, they, weren't, they weren't open. They're not like just showing up going, hey, by the way, I'm a false teacher. Glad I could join you guys today. No, they snuck in. They said that they believed the things that we believe. They said they, they were after the things that we were after. And, and they were even given in some sense some authority. And what we discover here is saying, no, no, no. These guys have crept in unnoticed. Now, they were talked about a long time ago. I believe he's referencing the, what Second Peter is saying. You can go home and read Second Peter and see how it parallels with Jude. But Second Peter is warning about these false teachers and our need to, that they're going to come. And he says, no, no, we've heard that these guys are coming. They've been designated to this condemnation. Ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God. They take this gospel and they turn it into sensuality. They take this thing where God has sent his son, Jesus Christ, not just to bear our sins on the cross. Yes, to forgive us of our sins yesterday, today, and forever. That these, the future, all these sins are summed up on him. You're forgiven. But to give us his righteousness as we found out in Romans. That we walk in his way. That we can have this relationship with God. And know him deeply. And what they do is they come and say, but it doesn't really matter. You can do whatever you want. It's just a get out of jail free card. Just, just take Jesus with you wherever you go. Whenever you sin. After you're done sinning, just hold him up and go, I'm out of, I'm out of hell. I'm good. Thank you. So live like a crazy person, enjoy everything you want, smoke your marijuana, drink, you know, drink yourself into oblivion, make sure you can do whatever you want sexually, you know, make sure your time is your time, you don't have to be at church, you don't have to do these things, you don't have to study the word of God, just, just do whatever you want, then when the day comes, pull out your Jesus card and you're good to go. That's what these guys were turning it into. And he says, guys, we need to fight this. This, this, what was called antinomianism, it's still today, that's, the, that's a technical term for it. We talked about it in 2 John when we looked at that, was floating through the church at this time period. And he was saying, listen, some people are running around telling you, you do whatever you want, have sensuality, enjoy your sensuousness, enjoy your license to sin, because that's what Jesus has given you. And Judas like, guys, this is not what it is, that's to deny our only master and Lord, Jesus Christ. It denies his lordship and it takes it away from him. He just becomes a hobby or some safety net. And if that's what we're here for church for, he's like, that's not the gospel. We need to fight to defend this. And if we're listening carefully, this is the same exact thing our culture is telling us today. Isn't it? Facebook, there are famous pastors, people standing up basically saying, you know, Jesus loves you. And he doesn't want you to suffer and he doesn't want you to do anything. He just wants you to have a happy life. 
Some of us may even believe that that's what God's out for. He's just after your happiness, that he would never put you through something difficult. He would never put you through a situation to make you choose. You know, your, your feelings and your desires, well, they're good because God gave them to you. That's not true. That's a false teaching. It's crept in. It's come. And he says, it's time for us to fight. It's time for us to defend. And, and so Jude, who's not going to back off, he's going to be pretty heavy. We're going to fly through some of this information because if we're going to contend, we got to know who we're contending against. What, what's going on here? First of all, we got to fight for the faith, but then who do we contend with? And at that point, we need to know the traits of false teachers. So let's do this. We're going to open up into this, and he's going to start fleshing out those false teachers. He says, now, I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. Now you're like, when did Jesus save somebody from out of Egypt. It's like, what, did I miss a story? Is there a book I didn't read? Actually, what he's doing is he's taking the Old Testament and he's using it in a format of allegory. And this is a, was a legal way of doing this back in the day, as long as they said they were doing it. And, and we know that he's doing it because there was an interpretive method that they would use where this pillar of fire and the rock that gave water, they would say, look, those are the symbols of Jesus. Jesus, Jesus was the bread that came from heaven. He was the manna that they ate it from. And if you haven't read the story of the Exodus, you can go back and, and read through that. It's, and you just read the story portions if you don't want to get into the details of the law. But the story shows up that basically God has taken this people out of Egypt, out of slavery, bondage, us being bounded to sin, setting us free through the waters of baptism as they viewed the crossing of the uh, Red Sea into this land in which we wander to the promised land, which is heaven. And so there's this whole allegory that's built around the Exodus that Jude's kind of leaning into here. And he says, look, Jesus was the one who led him out. He saved him out. And those people who rebelled against him, he destroyed. And you can read that, those stories. But his point is, those people who wish to contend with Jesus are not going to win. They're going to find themselves in difficulty. And so... He's warning us that these people then is the people we want to look out for. And we're going to put this in a linear order. Uh, Jude is very Jewish, and so he writes it in a cyclical manner. He kind of goes, here's some illustrations. Here's my main point. Here's another illustration. Cycle one done. Here's another bunch of stuff, and here's my main point. Cycle two done. And he does it kind of as a cyclical logic, which is what a lot of Hebrew writers do. They like to kind of run around their point, nail their point, and run back around it a couple times like that. And so we're going to kind of make it more Western and just... Throw it into a list here. So let's do that together. And so he starts off, and his first point is that these, these false teachers, if you're going to find a false teacher, they're going to claim esoteric knowledge. Notice this, verse 8. Yet in like manner, these people also, relying on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. That terminology, relying on their dreams, is an interesting one. Apparently, these false teachers were claiming they were having dreams or they had this dream of some kind that gave them the knowledge that this was how they could live. And this is the reality. You will find a false teacher always coming with esoteric knowledge. Dreams in the ancient world was a way to receive knowledge from God, from gods, from demons, from angels, or from your inner psyche, or whatever it was. Dreams was a powerful way to say, this is the authority of the supreme world, and now you have to listen to me. So they were claiming visions, claiming dreams, and if you notice false teaching in the world, there's always some kind of new authoritative, esoteric stuff that comes in. Oh, well, as somebody told me once, we know better today about these, about human behavior than we did in the past. So we know how to really judge this better. I'm like, 
Really? You think we know better with our psychology and everything better about the human psyche than they did in the ancient world? Or they seem to understand their emotions in a very powerful manner than we do? You know, we're very scientific. They were very real and gritty with life. Using words like anger was like the fire from your nose. They, they, they knew where everything was coming from. And yet we're, we're like, oh, no, we've, we've got this all figured out. We, we know that's not a behavior. It's an identity. We know that that's not this. It's that. And this is the esoteric new knowledge. And the, what, is the, what is the dream that they come? Oh, science. Statistics. This thing is proven when you can go dig it up and there's no real proof. It's just people arguing back and forth about things. If you've ever dived and dove further and further into knowledge, you find that most everything is being debated. And what you're discovering here is that esoteric truth is being implemented. Isn't it funny that Muhammad would claim that he gained truth through a dream and a vision of Gabriel. Joseph Smith would come and say, I had a vision of these angels, of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. They, they empowered me with this knowledge, dreams, esoteric knowledge, special plates and revelation. In fact, today there are plenty of religions beginning right now based on a different form of creature that comes and speaks to us. Not angels, but, but aliens. Now we could think that's funny, Except more and more people believe in aliens in our culture than they do angels. In fact, they would say, oh look, angels are aliens. We just got it all mixed up in the past. And so people are claiming, I have re- I've met the Romulans or whatever, and, and um, they're, they're here ready to tell me about this. And, from, and they're starting religious belief systems based on the esoteric knowledge that is around from what the aliens left. Anybody watch the show Ancient Aliens? I mean, this stuff is all over the place. Oh, they already told us they were here by the positioning of the pyramids across the, you know, all this stuff. Bottom line is, esoteric knowledge is what claim every false teacher makes. Oh, I got something nobody's ever seen before. And it comes from this very authoritative source. And when you hear that, you should immediately go, oh, that's a problem. So moves on. He goes on to next that they, you look at their lifestyle and it's filled with immorality. In fact, in verse 8 again, he goes on. He says, they rely on their dreams. They defile the flesh. They, they, they sin in their flesh. In fact, earlier he uses an illustration of this in verse 7. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulge in sexual immorality and pursued a natural desire, serve as an example by undergoing the punishment of eternal fire. Jude doesn't pull punches. He's just like, look, these guys, they got eternal fire because they were whacked out sexually. They just were after everything. They, they ran after all their stuff. In fact, later, verse 10, he defines it this way. But these people blaspheme all that they do not understand and they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. Now, this is key. He starts going into the fact that they live by their instincts They understand things, but they understand them instinctually. They understand them by their desires and their longings, not with reason and thought. And so there's a difference between thinking through something and feeling something. And in a culture that wants your feelings to be master of our lives, because if God gave you these feelings, then they got to be right. That's not true. Scripture, in fact, indicates that your desires are what lead you astray to temptation. And when temptation gives birth, it gives birth to sin. And when sin has its full way, it leads to death. That it begins with our feelings and desires, our longings for something. In fact, Jesus says that those longings come from the heart. And Jeremiah states very clearly, the heart is deceitful above all else. 
The Bible is very clear that we need to be cautious about what this system inside of us of desires aims us at. Because when we live by that way, we're just living like the animals. We're living off instinct. And it destroys. And he says, in this way, you can see that in their life, immorality increases. It's no wonder, strangely enough, that we have very strange sexual doctrines introduced by many of these very promising people who have dreams and visions. Typically floating around things that, weren't, that were overemphasized, like polygamy was one of those that came out. Today, there's all, in Jonesboro and all that stuff, there's discovery of all kinds of weird wickedness that was going on in those places. If it's not on that side of immorality and that kind of desiring the flesh where we're trying to license everything, it turns into the license of just flying after your desires, whatever you want to eat, wherever you want to go, do things, have it. The licentiousness we see in our culture is spread by this very doctrine and then lived out by these people as an example. And as you study and look at these people, oftentimes you'll discover they have a very, very powerful motivation because they want to live out immorality. And so they argue for their position of license. And when you see that connection, when you see somebody arguing for their friend's immoral lifestyle, according to scriptures, or their own immoral lifestyle, according to scriptures, they will twist the scriptures before they will look at the situation. That's the beginning of much false teaching. And that's what Jude says. Now, note, I didn't, this is Jude from way back in the day. I mean, he's talking uh, uh, several, several centuries ago. And he goes on in verse, he goes on then, that the next thing they do is they push off authority. Pushing off authority is an interesting one because he goes on again in verse 8, he says, they reject authority. His illustration of this was earlier in verse 6. And he says, and the angels who did not stay in their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept the eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. And he's referencing a well-known popular story in the time period. Uh, this idea of these angels who were given a certain set of authority and they desired to ignore that, come down to earth, sleep with women, and create giants and all this stuff. And it was kind of this mythology, Jewish mythology that had grown up. And so this, in that Jewish mythology, Jude's referencing that. He's saying that situation is an image of what's going on here. They've ignored the authority. They pushed it off. They shoved it away to do what they wanted to do to make themselves authority. And I'll tell you what, guys. The American church has never been more ignorant of our authorities. We're a group of people that honestly, we don't study our history. We wouldn't know our, the people that we stand on theologically. In fact, we'd rather argue oftentimes about what they taught us than go and listen to them. And so I can bring up names like Tertullian or Athanasius, or we can look at people like Aquinas and Augustine. And maybe you've heard the names, or maybe those are just like, wow, who in the world are those? Those are people we stand on for our theology. People who have wrestled through very problems that we wrestle through today, but we haven't gone to listen We've judged the authorities of the past and thrown them out, assuming that we've got it all figured out. And when you see a teacher throw out the past and throw out other authorities, that's not bold and new. That's a step in false, towards false teaching, Jude tells us. Look, and that's popular in America. Do you know why? Because we have underlying us, and this isn't bad, but this is, this is what is underlying us. Originally, out of a good intent to throw off tyranny that was suppressing us, we threw off the rule of King George. That has trickled down after a couple centuries to us thinking no authority should control us. And has become one of the sins of our nation. And one of the very things in our culture. But as Christians, we realize we do have an authority that's over us. His name is God, His Jesus Christ is our King. 
And there's a reality that we cannot throw out the word of God's, we can't throw out the word of God as an authority, nor should we ignore those who have gone with Christ and studied this in the past. Now, am I saying you should obey everything every past teacher has taught you? No. You should judge it by the scriptures. Whether they're in your small group teaching you something, whether they're at a Bible study in this church or another church, or whether it's me or some other pastor on the radio or another pulpit, this is the governing authority. This is what we should understand and know. And when we talk through that back in 2 John, that's the process we need to have in our hearts. We need to know the word of God and judge teaching by the word of God. And therefore, we won't fall into false teaching and we don't throw off authority. And so we want to make sure when you hear a, a, a teacher throw away an authority, we want to be like, whoa, hold on a second. Let's go check that out. And so that is one of the other things that they will do. The, the final thing that he points out in verse 8 is they scoff at supernatural beings, which is kind of an odd statement, but notice how he puts it. He says, they reject authority and blaspheme the glorious ones goes on to talk about that. When the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, the Lord rebuke you. Now, he's referencing here an odd book called The Testament of Moses. We have it today. The book was a popular Jewish reading of, um, of kind of a, a story about what happened to Moses after he died. And so it was a popular kind of you know, story that people picked up, much like we would read Narnia. There were several books out there that were really popular. Um, this Testament of Moses, First Enoch, Second Enoch. These are kind of the, the popular fiction of the time period. And so he's referencing this popular fiction multiple times in this book. And as he does that, he's just kind of going, guys, remember this story? This is what's going on. This is an illustration of this. He didn't eat that the archangel Michael didn't even look at Satan and say, I rebuke you. He said, no, the Lord rebuke you. And he seems to be referencing that these false teachers have a tendency to think that they have control over the demonic or control over the supernatural. Now, I want you to think about false teachers that exist in this world right now who claim they have the power of the Holy Spirit to do things to people. That they somehow have the ability to manipulate God's power in order to accomplish their ends. There are other people out there that claim that they've received testimony and witness from angels. Whether it's the angel Moroni, whether it's the angel Gabriel, whether it's another angel. These people literally invoke and state, I have a supernatural power that is with me. It's very curious that these people literally either say, I control the supernatural. Or on the other hand, they just say, there is no such thing as the supernatural. It's just science. We got to figure it out. And they scoff at the reality of a supernatural world in one way or the other. In fact, I get nervous when I hear us Christians sometimes running around going, I, I rebuke the devil in Jesus' name. I say, okay, hold on. Even the archangel Michael, who's probably pretty darn equipped to battle Satan, won't say, I rebuke you. He leaves it up to the Lord. And so there's a sense of, I've got this, that we need to be careful about. I don't think we should be delving in to the esoteric supernatural aspects of demonology and Satanology in the studies to really say, I got this. I think that is a very dangerous thing. In fact, when you hear somebody stating that, it's one of those things you can back off and probably say, I think this is close to false teaching. That's one of the things Jude stated. They were into blaspheming the supernatural ones into this kind of, I've got this mentality. Now, it's strange, we can pick these out. If you, I don't know how many false teachers you can think of with all these kind of attributes, but they, they line up pretty interestingly. But he goes on, he says, the next one is really interesting. They seek gain. What does he mean by that? Well, we jump down here to verse 9, or sorry, verse 10. He says, but these people blaspheme. 
all that they do not understand. And they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. Woe to them! For they walked in the way of Cain and abandoned themselves to the, to, for the sake of gain to Balaam's error and perished in Korah's rebellion. And right there, if you don't know who Cain, Balaam, and Korah are, you're, you're kind of like, I'm out. What, what, what did he just say? That makes no sense to me. And if you're new to the Bible, it probably won't make much sense to you. But, because it's hard to get through those first five books of the Bible. But that's where these guys come from. They're considered like the, the hall of evil. You know, the, these are the worst of the worst kind of guys that you can mention. Cain was this man right at the beginning. It's in chapter 4 of your Bible that he literally is so angry that God loved his brother Abel's offering better than his. He kills his brother in a desire somehow out of his jealousy to gain spiritually before God. He was that upset that God even warned him and said, hey, you don't have to do this. If you do what's right, don't you think I'll look on you? Something in Cain's heart thought, if I get rid of my brother, then I'm going to be the spiritual giant. This isn't fair. And so Cain is a representation of spiritual gain. Balaam was an interesting guy. Balaam, if you ever want to read an interesting story, he, his donkey talks to him and, and rebukes him. That's how hard-headed this guy was. God had to wake a mouth of an animal up. And you're like, that sounds weird. It's in the book of Numbers. And so Balaam is a soothsayer. Uh, a Jewish, either Jewish or not, we're not quite sure. But in this context, he's claiming he's a Jewish soothsayer who could stand up and hear from the gods and speak and pronounce blessing or curse. And so this... King Barak has called him out and says, I want you to go tell the, to curse Israel. And he tries three times and fails because God only wants to bless Israel. Well, in the middle of all this, Balaam still wants to get paid. He wants his monetary gain. And so what he does is he brings down from this, this country all of these women and has them basically prostitute themselves throughout all of Israel. And they lose the favor of God because of their sin. And it's called Balaam's curse. It's the way Balaam dealt with things. And it's a rise of sexual immorality and monetary gain. The third guy is Korah. Korah was this man who did not like what Moses was doing. Moses was leading the people out of Israel. He was this powerful leader. And Korah said, you're ridiculous. We want control. And so he rose up a rebellion against Moses. Well, God didn't like that. In fact, he split the earth open, swallowed Korah up completely, and shut it on top of him. That's how God dealt with Korah. And so Korah's picture is a picture of the gain of power. Now, what's interesting is if you've ever gotten in a conversation about why the apostles would preach about Jesus Christ. You ever, anybody ever had that conversation? Why would the apostles, what did the apostles gain out of preaching about Jesus? And people always invariably go, oh, they get sex, money, or power. Anybody heard that one before? Well, here's what's interesting. Jude agrees that false teachers seek Sex, money, or power, spiritually or otherwise, in the start of their religions. So suddenly, the world's very right. That is the reason many people falsely start a religion. The problem is that's not why the apostles did it. The apostles literally said, you want to be powerful? Then be the servant of all. Humble yourself like Jesus did. Give your life away. Oh, you want to, you want to be somebody who's wealthy? Awesome. Work hard and give the excess to the poor. Don't keep it for yourself. Oh, you want to you have lots and lots of sex? Then get married. Because everything else is off limits. And only married to one person, by the way. You don't get multiples. That's, that's the point here. Don't, even divorce can lead you into adultery. That's how strict the teachings in Scripture get on those three topics. And so what's weird is that Jude says, you want to find a false teacher? Yeah, they're going to be after some kind of gain. 
some kind of financial gain. Uh, you bless, you bring that money in, it'll bless you 10 times, and suddenly these people are flying around in jets, and you're still stuck. Oh, you want, you want spiritual power? Here, I'm gonna, I'll, I'll, I'll send you my special rag that I've cried on or something like that. Or anointed with oil or you name it. People will use these things for gain. And the reality is every false teacher is gaining power, money, or sexually. I go back and study the, the, the movements in church history that deviate from the gospel. And you'll find one of those elements every single time. And Jude nailed it right there. He says, guys, look at that. That's a false teacher. In fact, the biggest danger is what they teach is fruitless and useless. He goes on, and these are hidden reefs at your love feast. They will basically disrupt and destroy your faith if you're not careful. They feast with you without fear. Shepherds feeding themselves. They're not giving you what you need. They get what they want. They're waterless clouds swept along by the winds. You're like, oh, it's going to rain. No, it's just going on. They show up, they preach, and then they leave. And you gain nothing from them. They're fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead, uprooted. You're not getting anything from them. They're waves, wild waves of the sea, casting up the foam of their shame, wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. And his point is simply this, you get nothing from them. In fact, if you follow them, they will wreck your faith. They will take the intimacy you have with Christ and just crush it, destroy it, wipe it out. You'll be constantly starving, constantly longing, constantly hoping, waiting for that blessing, waiting for that miracle, and all you will receive in return is you didn't have enough faith. And they'll manipulate you spiritually, knowing that you want to gain too. Guys, false teachers are bad news. And it's no wonder then that he goes back to that popular book in his time period of First Enoch. And he says, hey, we even have in our popular fiction, we know how true this is. Verse 17. But you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you, in the last time, there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. Or sorry, I jumped down to 17. Go back up to 14. It was also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied saying, behold, the Lord comes with tens of thousands of holy ones to execute judgment. Now, I want you to note every time he says ungodly, to judgment on, uh, to con sorry, on all to convict the ungodly of their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way and all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. Is, what's his point? They're ungodly. Saying, look guys, even Enoch notes the ungodliness of these people, that they were going to be judged in the judgment. These people are not people you want to be around. They're not people you want in your church. He's saying, guys, wake up. It's time to fight. The preciousness of your salvation is being attacked. Wake up. It's time to defend. Mama bears, get angry well, in the right way, righteous way. Men, wake up. There's a cause that we need to defend. There's a righteousness that we need to stand for. And these guys are trying to take it. And so we need to hear that this is a serious situation. He's pointed out, this is who you're contending against. They're going to bring esoteric knowledge. They're going to live immorally. They're going to push off authority. They're going to scoff at the supernatural. They're going to seek to gain from you. And they're going to teach a fruitlessness and stuff that doesn't work. And ultimately, therein is going to be judged. And so I'll warn you, if you're playing with false teaching of licentiousness and antinomianism, which is the belief that you can do whatever you want, 
And Jesus is still going to get you out of it. You're going to get judged, and I don't want you to. Hear me. Jesus did not save us to do whatever the heck we wanted. He wants you to hear that he loves you, he's died on your behalf, and he's given you salvation if you would have it. This is what false teachers teach. This is what they do. And so what does he call us to do? We have to maintain our faith. It's hard. Now, in your notes, you've got five different things. I want you to take the third one. I want you to star it. Um, this third point here, um, as I did more research, this is the central piece of what he's going to say next. And so that central piece of maintaining it, maintaining it and keeping each other in the love of God is the centerpiece of what we're looking at. And he's saying, you and I need to maintain our faith. In verse 16, he goes on, these are grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires. They're loudmouth boasters, showing favoritism to gain advantage. But you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you in the last time, there'll be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. It is these who will cause divisions, worldly people devoid of the spirit. Why does he bring this stuff up? Except to give us a warning. This is how false teachers work their way in. They find your discontent. They find your frustration. Oh, that pastor hurt me like this. Oh, that group of people did this to me. Oh, I don't get that theology point. That really bugs me that that happened in the book of Joshua or that happens over here. They, they find that little tiny thing to stir up that confusion and then they divide you. They cut you off. They get you contentious, frustrated, angry, and then they give you favoritism. They start showing you favor because you're in those positions. They say, you don't have to trust that guy. I got somebody better. They may introduce you to a teacher. They may introduce you to themselves or some interpretation, but that's the way they go. They go through your frustration. They go through your doubts to open the door. And my friends, I, I just want to let you know that you're going to have frustrations. We're imperfect as human beings. Amen? We're also limited in our knowledge. You can't answer every question. It's okay to ask and we can search and look. And I believe the majority of questions that have ever been asked have pretty much been solved by somebody who's worked through them. But guys, the reality is that you're going to have doubts and you're going to have thoughts and that's okay. But when somebody tries to foment those and form that into a reason why you should reject Christ and the way that he's taught and the way that scripture is taught, is a good reason to go, you know what? I don't think that you're helping me here. And so he says, no, together, this is all plural, that we need to maintain the faith together. This is all together. And so he says to them, verse 20, but you beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God. Keep yourselves together. First and foremost, he says, you can write a number one against that top one. We need to maintain the faith through building each other up in holiness. And what he means here is the holy faith in the set-apartness. Write these four things down. If you want to know what theology is, it is who is God? What has he made? What has he done? And how should we respond? That's all theology is. If you pull up in a theology book, and they can be giant, they can be small, it's going to tell you who is God, what are his attributes, what is he like, how does he care, what is these things, who is this God, what has he made? He made creation. He made, what is the creation? The angelic and the heavenly creation, the earthly creation, science, all that stuff wraps into this. What has he made? Humanity, the image of God, angels and demons, and all this stuff, you'll find what has he made? And then it's what has he done? 
How has he saved us? How has he redeemed us? How is he transforming us? How is he changing the world? What is he making the church for? What's the purpose of the church? What's happening in missions? When will he come back? All of this is what has he done to how should we respond? How then should I live my life? That's theology. If you can answer those four questions, you are well on your way to smelling and seeing false teaching. And he says, build each other up, teach each other, pour into each other. Some of you are prepped and should be ready. I would love to meet us and let's get a team together and start teaching the stuff of the church. Amen? Nobody here should have to go pay tens of thousands of dollars to get a decent theological education. That's the zone of the church. If you want to go get the esoterics, we'll send you to seminary. That'll be, you know, that's where you can get the really crazy stuff. Let's get the basics here. And so we want to understand this stuff. Then he says, let's maintain it through prayer and the Holy Spirit. Now, Paul will reference that concept in 1 Corinthians, but it's different here. He's literally saying in the Holy Spirit, meaning in our unity, in our connectedness to one another. Let's pray together, pray for each other. But here's the problem, Olive Branch, real quick. I want you to hear me. When we do the sources, when we call for a prayer night, less than a quarter of us even show up. Why? Let's be honest with ourselves. What excuse can we give if God's telling us maintain our faith that less than a quarter of us show up to pray together, which is to pray in the Holy Spirit, to be united together in prayer? Ah, busy. Does that stand before Jesus when he questions us, do you think? Are we putting MVP before G-O-D? Are we, are, you know, are we, are we creating excuses for ourselves? For why we can't do what is so central and essential to Christian life together. Sometimes we wonder, where is God's movement? Why isn't he acting amongst us? Maybe it's because we have ceased to say, we don't need to pray in the Holy Spirit. We don't need to pray together. And therefore, our faith isn't being maintained. Leave your car alone long enough. Don't maintain it very long. I'll tell you what happens because that's what happens to my cars. But the, uh, trying to work on that. They don't, work all, they don't work well. There's something wrong with them. If we keep a general maintenance where we're encouraging each other to know the truth, we're praying together, and then we move on to where we are actually not losing sight of heaven. We're encouraging each other into the day in which we will walk in eternity with God, that we're saved, that we're sealed into eternity. Heaven is ours. We dream about it. We sing about it. We praise God about it. It shapes the way that we think. We have the end right. We have the connection with God right. We have the truth right. And then we're able to care about each other and have mercy on each other while despising sin. He says, even the garment of it. Verse 22, have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by flesh. This is that love the sinner, hate the sin. That's where it comes from. Love them, snatch them away, pull them close. Just be careful that you yourself don't enter into sin because of what you see. Guys, just remember we're all broken. We're all sinful. We're all messed up. It's by Jesus Christ's grace that we're saved. And that's how you can relate and connect. In the end, Jude just basically is saying, guys, we're in a fight. We need this fight. We need to defend the faith. It is our job. It's been entrusted to us. It's God's precious gospel, our salvation handed to you. I wish I had something precious just to put in your hand, to walk away with like an ornament that could easily break. Maybe this week you should just take all of your defense off of your, off your cell phones and see, you know, and then you got an idea how precious something is, right? All it takes one slip and that thing's broken. 
Your gospel, the gospel is so precious. It needs to be defended. And it's our job to do so. What I'm going to do is I want to pray with you guys. But I'm going to close out by praying these last verses over you as they're a doxology and a call. And so I want to, I want to invite you guys to bow your heads and, and hear these words that I want to pray over you guys. Father in heaven, your words are very clear here that we need to defend. And you say now that we are to declare to you who is able. You're able to keep us from stumbling. You, and, you, you are able to present us blameless before you in your presence with great joy. And, and God, you are the only God. You are our Savior through Jesus Christ, our Lord. And to you, we want to give glory. We want to give you the majesty and the dominion and the authority because it's been yours before time, it's yours now, it will be yours forever. And in this, ground us in our faith that we would stand firm and lovingly contend for this as we struggle to keep it firm in Jesus' name. Amen.